John chapter 17, starting in verse number 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thy own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This morning... um, We'll look at the glory of God in this text, the glory of God. I planned while Brother Harold was recuperating and preparing for his um, pacemaker that in the Sunday school time we'll be looking at John, but you know, I, I would look and, and read these passages and there's just so much there. And I think, well, how can you even break this down? How can you even begin to examine all that there is in this passage? And just almost overwhelming because there's so much here just in these words that Jesus said. So much that you could dig into and, and to examine. When I first started filling in for my dad, he'd go to a Bible conference and and uh, I'd fill in for him while he was gone. And I would look and say, I got I got to talk for 30 minutes. I got to figure out something to say for 30 minutes. And lots of times I wouldn't get that far. Uh, but as, as, you be, as I've gone on and uh, began preaching and so forth, it's not that there's, how can you find something to say? It's what, what do you have to leave out is usually the big problem. What, what do you leave out? Because there's so much there. And that's what this is. And, and I was helped a lot by reading J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was preaching through this and, He said, it's needless to say that the chapter before us contains many deep things. It could hardly be otherwise. He that reads the words spoken by one person of the Blessed Trinity to another person, by the Son to the Father, must surely be prepared to find much that he cannot fully understand, much that he had no lime to fathom. There are sentences, words, and expressions in these 26 verses of this chapter which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. We have not minds to do it or to understand the matters it contains, if we could. But there are great truths in this chapter which stand out clearly and plainly on its face, and these truths we shall do well to direct our best attention. And it does make sense, doesn't it, that what this is is a prayer. This is really the Lord's prayer. But this is the prayer of the second person of the Trinity, praying to the first person of the Trinity. It is a prayer of God the Son, praying to God the Father. It's not Jesus talking to us and explaining things to us in ways that we can understand. Even when Jesus taught in ways that we could understand them, in plain plain stories and plain illustrations, it was hard sometimes for us to understand. But this is Jesus speaking to the Father. And this intra-Trinitarian prayer, this communion between Father and Son, it it makes perfect sense that this is going to be some deep waters. Um, 
But what I want to do this morning is focus our attention on the glory of God. Because at the beginning, and a little bit in the middle, and then at the end, um, you find that this is a big thrust of this prayer. Uh, we read of the glory here, of course, and then in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So the glory of God sort of brackets um, and, and flows through this prayer. And so that's what we want to focus on in these first five verses this morning, the glory of God. Well, Jesus says, first of all, he starts praying. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. Earlier, the hour had not yet come. Um, So in John chapter 7 and verse number 6, it says, then Jesus said unto them, my time has not yet come, but your time always is. Um, And then over in uh, verse number 30, then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Chapter number 8 and verse number 20. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Jesus would speak. People would get very angry. But no man touched him because the hour had not yet come. It was not yet time. And over in John chapter number 12 and verse number 20. There were certain Greeks among them that came to worship him at the feast. The same came before Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus, And Jesus answered, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then you get over to chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. So earlier in Jesus' public ministry, people heard him preach and they hated him. They desired to get rid of him. They wanted to get rid of him. But no, the hour was not yet come. They couldn't touch him because the hour wasn't. It wasn't time. Not, you know, various times the hour had not yet come. But when Jesus came into Jerusalem this last time, and the Gentiles came to him, Jesus said, "The hour has come. This is the hour the Son of the Son of Man should be glorified." And Jesus knew the hour was come, and that was his final sermon to the multitude. And then he goes before, knowing that his hour had come. He prepares his disciples in the upper room discourse. And now that the hour has come, he prays to the Father, the hour has come. The time has come. What hour? Well, that, that clues us in. Uh, you kind of know whenever you're reading, when they, the, the, the enemies of Christ wanted to lay hands on him, they wanted to arrest him and try him and, and, and put him to death. No, the hour has not yet come. It's not time. It's not time. But now he says, now it's time. Now it's time that I come to do what I have set out to do. And Jesus has told his disciples many times. He's going to go someplace where they couldn't follow him. He's going to go somewhere and be gone. He's about to die. 
The hour has come where Jesus is going to lay down his life for the sheep. The hour has come where Jesus is going to die on the cross. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. This wasn't something that um, no one would have ever suspected. In fact, this was a prophecy that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Um, there in this very first instance of the gospel, that God in the, in the execution of justice or judgment, in the curse, has a promise that one day an hour would come. And what would happen in that hour? Well, I will, it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And while doing that, he will be struck. By, while doing that, he will die. The seed of the woman would come, and he would lay down his life for his people. This is the hour that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53. Where he gave his soul an offering for sin. The hour where they saw no beauty in him. They saw no good thing in the Lord who had come to die. The suffering servant of Jehovah would come. A root out of a dry ground with no form or comeliness. The hour would come where the man of sorrows, despised and rejected um, of men, would be smitten of God and afflicted, as a, going as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shears is dumb, to make his grave, to die for the transgression of his people, to be stricken to cut off, be cut off from the land of the living. The hour had come where the Messiah would, would sacrifice himself for our sins. The hour prophesied in John or Psalms 22, where he would be surrounded by those who hate him and, and, and mocked and scourged and crucified. The hour had come, the anticipated hour. The hour that was ordained before the foundation of the world. This is the will of God in the covenant of redemption. It wasn't the hour of the Romans. It wasn't the hour of the chief priests. It wasn't the hour of the high priest. It wasn't the hour of the Jews or, or anyone else. This was the hour ordained of God before the foundation of the world. That the Son would come and he, the word would be made flesh and, and enter into this world that he would live and that he would die for the sins of his people. That those that the Father had chosen unto everlasting life would be redeemed by the blood of the Son. This most critical and glorious moment in the history of the created universe where God would be glorified in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Owen said it is the will of the Father appointing and designing the Son to be the 
head, the husband, the deliverer, the redeemer of the elect, his church, his people, whom he did foreknow with the will of the Son, voluntarily, freely undertaking that work and all that was required thereunto. The Son came freely to do all that was required in the work of redemption. He shed his blood for his elect. He shed his blood, as the scriptures say, for his church. As our redeemer and mediator and deliverer, the hour has come where Jesus would lay down his life to glorify uh, or for the glory of God. So what do we mean by the glory of God? The hour has come where the Son would be glorified, the Father would be glorified with this glory which Jesus had before the world was. So what is this glory? Well, the glory of God is described in many ways. Sometimes it's described as, as light, as holiness, as a bright shining light. Jesus um, transfigured was transfigured to where they, John and Peter, they saw the glory of God, the glory of Christ, where the veil was sort of taken away for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus shone like a bright light, wider than, than they could imagine. Well, that is the glory that they saw momentarily. In the book of Revelation, John, while on the island of Patmos, saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and fell at his feet like he was dead because of the brightness and the splendor and the awe and the majesty. Isaiah chapter number 6, where the angels couldn't, wouldn't, they covered their face with their wings, and two did the wings they flew, and two they covered the feet, but they covered themselves the brightness and the glory and the holiness of God. Well, this is, this is his, his glory. And when we see the glory of God, it's the external expression or the manifestation of who God is. So God has in himself glory, that brightness, that, that, that holiness, that, that light, or that, 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 that weight of glory that, that the Lord has. It's a lot easier just to know and you can read it and kind of know what it means, but it's hard to put into words exactly what it is. But, but that, that's what it is. That's all we can think of. Where, where the people saw a vision of God, or saw Jesus Christ unveiled, as it were, and just fell at their feet at the brightness of the glory of God. Paul, on the roads to Damascus, saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all the brightness of his glory. And it blinded him that he lost sight because he, he looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the manifestation of the, the greatness, the invisible attributes of his perfections. So all that God is, is, is his glory, his perfections, his holiness, his wisdom, his, his might. And so in these, so when we look at Christ in this, we see visibly the, the, the glory of God. So that, that is the glory, but what is it to glorify? Well, you can glorify something by making it glorious. 
or cause something to be glorious. Or you can glorify something by pointing out the fact that it is glorious. So that would be to praise or to honor, to worship or to celebrate. So if you're going to glorify something, you could either make it glorious or you could cause it to be seen as glorious. So you might think of it as in something like an ordinary watch. You see a watch and you say, well, there's nothing to that. It's a watch. Everybody has a watch. But if you started taking a, mecha- uh, not a digital watch, but a, a mechanical watch, you start taking that apart, and then somebody explains to you what all those little gears are and how they work and how precise they have to be to work, the more that you learned about the watch and what it took to make the watch, the more impressed that you might be about somebody could make that. I read a book about a watchmaker back in the, the 1700s and how the, he took his whole life was dedicated to trying to make this perfect watch. And, and years and years and years of his life thinking and working and meticulously putting this watch together um, in order to, to make it uh, so precise. And all that went into that and the design. Well, if you just look at it, so, well, that's just a clock. Well, then he starts explaining what happens. Oh, wow, now I see. That, that's very impressive. So you can either make something glorious or you can, you can call something to be seen as such. Or you can praise and worship and honor and celebrate. So whenever Jesus says, The hour has come, glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. It has to mean one of those three things. In the New Testament, every time but four times when you read about glorifying something, it's always referring to God, glorifying God. Those four times is Paul talking about, in Romans 11, 13, the office of apostle. He magnifies his office. So what he's doing was um, preaching to the Gentiles that the office that God had called him to would be magnified. So that's really just doing the work of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.10 talks about the glory of, there was glory in the law, but it was surpassed by the glory of the gospel. But then Revelation 18.7 talks about the glory that Babylon, ancient Babylon, that, that wicked religious system glorifies herself. And then you got Romans 8.30, where it says, whom he justified them, he also glorified. So there's an instance. To which, so you know, Babylon glorifies herself, brings herself glory, and she's judged for that. And then Paul's talking about either the law or the gospel or the office. So we'll set those two things aside because that's really lifting up God. But, but here it talks about God glorifying us. Well, that is God um, glorifying the elect in Christ after his return. That's making us in the likeness of Christ, that we would have communion with Christ, an everlasting vision of Christ, a freedom from all that is sinful, from all that is wicked, from all that is harmful, 
and an enjoyment of all that is good. So really, that God glorifies us is making us like Christ. So he, he takes us who are weak and he is frail, and he, he glorifies us in that uh, he makes us like him. But every other instance is to praise, to glory, to honor God. So it's not that the Father, it's evident that the Father glorifies the Son. So you have to say, well, is it the Father glorifies the Son like he's going to glorify us? Well, no, because look in verse number five. It says, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thy own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. You see, God has an intrinsic glory, a glory that is within himself. So um, Psalm uh, 29 and this is also in First Chronicles. We're not going to turn to First Chronicles, but First Chronicles 16 says much of the same thing. In Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, it says, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord, Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So there is a glory of God. That, that it is due him. Creation owes it to the Lord, we might say, to, to glorify him because he is glorious. We don't make God glorious, but we praise him. We glorify him. We honor him. We celebrate what is true about him. So to glorify God is to, to worship him. And that is due him. And so, when Jesus says, glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee, it is not that, that God is making the son glorious, or that the son is going to make the father glorious. There is an intrinsic glory that is inherent in the Godhead. It is, it is the perfections of God. God has glory. He is glory. Paul calls the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. So, to so the Father is glorifying the Son, not making him glorious. But is the Father honoring the Son, and the Son honoring the Father? It is their, their work of, of glorifying one another in the Godhead. Isaiah 48.11 says, the Lord says, I will not give my glory unto another. He won't give his intrinsic glory to another. But the Father honors and praises, celebrates the Lord Jesus. And the Son causes the glory which Christ has, causes that to be seen. So here in the, in the hour that has come, all will see the glory of God. We will see the glory of Christ. We will see the glory of the Father. Christ will glorify the Father in the on the cross, and the Father will glorify the Son on the cross. That this hour will, will show all the glory that is inherent in, in Christ and in the Father. Now, some people will, will try to make this to mean that the Father 
give something to the son that he didn't have before. But Jesus is very clear on this, that glorify thou me with thy own self. Not just glorify me, but glorify me with thy own self. Isaiah 48, 11, remember, I will not give my glory unto another. And Jesus says, glorify me with thy own self. Which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus is saying very, something very important here about himself and about his nature and, and his glory. And so let, let's think about this for a minute. In the glory of Christ. There, there's two kinds of glory. There's extrinsic glory and intrinsic. Extrinsic glory is the glory of God that is communicated through his works. So you wake up and you go outside just before the sun rises. Everything's quiet and peaceful and calm. And then you see the sun start to rise. And it's, uh, you see the colors in the sky and the, the beauty that's there. And you might just say, well, praise God. What a beautiful sunrise. What a beautiful sunrise. You might see it set and, and watch it go down over the, over the, the hills and, and see the skies all different uh, colors and you just praise God. What a creation. Well, that is the glory of God communicated through his works because you see what God has made. You see what God has done and you honor him and you praise him. Someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you do? You say, praise God. Praise God. You don't say congratulations or good job or well done. You say, praise God. Praise God for what he has done. We've seen him work. We've seen his power. We've seen him save a, a, a sinner. So it is a perfection of God's glory that's communicated or revealed to us in creation. We see God doing something, and that makes us see God's power. So in the cross, we see this glory. We, we see God's justice. We see Christ's work. We see his obedience to the Father and, and the law, and, and by finishing the work, we see him humbling himself uh, unto death, even death on the cross. Verse number four, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou hast given me to do, or gavest me to do. So Jesus says, I have glorified you by doing the work that I was given to do. I perfectly kept the law. I preached the truth that you had had given me in in this work as mediator. As the Son of God, I have done all that, that I was given to do, and I have glorified you in this. As the Word made flesh, the Word communicated um, the, the glory of God to men. That you looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see the express image of the person, of the invisible God. And so Jesus has glorified the Father. In, by what he has done, and what he has said, and what he, is, what he did. Because we can see the invisible attributes and the invisible perfections in Jesus Christ. You can see the wisdom of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can see the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. You can see the compassion of God. 
and the power of God and the love of God. You can see all these perfections in Jesus Christ. So in this, Jesus revealed to us the glory uh, of the triune God that, that is inherent in the Godhead. You see, he, he, he showed us things in, in doing things and saying things that would otherwise be invisible. So verse number four says, I have glorified you by displaying, by manifesting your, your perfections, Father. But then in verse number five, he talks about his intrinsic glory. And that's just the glory that belongs to God alone. So God is love, right? That's what John says. God is love. God is holy. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. All these things are the perfections of the Lord God. These, these things that are inherent in God. So it's not a part of God. It's who God is. So that's the glory in which God alone has that's apart from his works. That's the glory that God has whether there's a creation or not. God was love before he created the world. God was love before you and I existed. Because he, that's, that's who he is. God was holy before you and I uh, existed. God was eternal before you and I existed. Now, he created and manifested in his creation ways in which we can see that glory. But, but in himself, he is glory. And, and that's what verse number five talks about. So there is a glory in which we see uh, God's perfections and what Christ has done. But there is also a glory in which that's just who God is. With the glory of my own self, the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So here's a glory that Christ had before the creation of the world. The person of God, the person of the Son had glory before there was a world. The Word had glory before there was a creation. Before there was any glory communicated to any other being because there was no other being. There was a glory, the glory of God. This same glory was the glory of the Father. So we're going back before there was time. We're back, going back in eternity where the eternal Father had a glory that was shared with the glory of the eternal Son. Now if the Father is eternal, you can only be a Father if there is a Son, so there must be a Son in eternity. And then they shared this perfection of God. So in the one, the one being of God, there is the, the glory of God, and the Father has this glory, the same glory, and the Son has the same glory. Now that's, that's mind-blowing to me to, to consider this and to, to think about this glory uh, of the Son, this eternal glory that the Lord of glory has. And then he comes to earth and he glorifies the Father before us that we may see the glory of the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son that we may see the glory of the Son. All that we do is for the glory of God. It should be. 
And, and here, the Father and the Son glorify one another in their perfection. Now, all men, all men have sinned and come short of what? We have come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. It's what Paul says in Romans 3.23. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't have, we, we can't reach that mark. We have fallen well short of that glory. Man has no glory worthy of praise, unless you're just talking about comparative man to man. So a football player might glory in his speed or his agility because he's faster than other people. And he's more agile than other people, or he's stronger than other people, right? So he might have a glory comparative to other people. But compared to the glory of God, who can love like God? Well, nobody. We have fallen short of the glory of God, even though we are commanded to love. Who can be perfect like God? Well, no one can. We've fallen short of that glory, even though we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Who can be truthful like God? Well, no one, because all men are liars, the Bible tells us. Who can be, who is eternal like God? Well, none of us are. Who is all-powerful like God? Well, none of us are. The fact that we have to go to sleep shows us that we have fallen well short of the glory of God Uh, For God is all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Man has fallen short of that glory of God. And any glory that we try to take upon ourselves is a false glory, a stolen glory. Stolen valor. That's when, um, that's a phrase whenever someone pretends that they were in the military or pretends that they had... uh, they were in the war and <clears throat> takes glory from the soldiers who really were. There's cases where people have made up a military career. And they, they, they'll say, yeah, I was in Iraq and I fought and I was wounded in battle and talk about all these battles that they were in and what they did and how they uh, rescued people and all this stuff. And it turns out they never were in the army to start with. That's a very shameful act for someone to do. Why? Because it's stolen valor. They didn't do those things, and they're taking those things that other people did and trying to bring glory to themselves. Well, if we try glory in the presence of God for our goodness and our holiness, well, that's stolen glory. It doesn't belong to us. But notice that Jesus has no problem claiming this glory of God for himself. He has no problem saying that he had glory before the world was. Now who can say that but God? Who can say that they have, that they share glory with God and they had that before there was a world to begin with? Well, no one can say that but God himself. All men have come short of the glory of God but not Jesus. Jesus has the glory of God. 
both the extrinsic glory that he shows and the intrinsic glory that he is. So Jesus is no mere ordinary man. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a preacher. He wasn't just a, a prophet or just a priest. But he is the eternal God. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Remember Isaiah says that God will not give his glory unto another, but Peter says to him be glory now and forever. Paul says that he, Jesus is the Lord of glory. The book of Revelation uh, glorifies the Lord Jesus. And there's, there's pictures of people falling at their feet and worshiping him. Now other times John would fall down before the angel and the angel would say, get up, don't glorify me. But then he falls before the face of the Lord Jesus and Jesus receives that glory. All honor and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. The honor and the glory do His name. We see here the, the eternal majesty of, of the Son. Well, how is the Son glorified? Well, the, the hour had come that the Father and the Son would be glorified in the work of redemption. So God is glorified in His grace that here we have men who have fallen short of his glory, who have broken his laws, who have broken his, his commands, who have not done what God has called us to do, have, have rebelled against him, that we don't love him, we don't love others. We're selfish and covetousness and, and murmuring and complaining and, 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 and liars and, and haters of things that are good. And yet God, in his great mercy, has chosen to save men and women and boys and girls who have fallen short of that glory, have missed the mark, have fallen short of that standard. He's chosen to save them. But how? How does he save them? He sends his son, made a little lower than the angels in the likeness of, of sinful flesh yet without sin, to this world, to live as a man in the flesh and to keep the law that we couldn't keep and to do all the things that we were supposed to do that, that could as our representative, just like Adam. He came to represent humanity. I will come and I will be their representative. I will, I will come and live for them. And God is glorified in that. And God is glorified in his grace and his mercy in that not only did Jesus live for us but he died for us and then we, he is glorified in his wisdom in that the father placed the sins of his people upon the Lord Jesus Christ and when the hour had come the sin that I have committed was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the justice of God and the holiness of God was glorified in that he spared not his own son. But by his stripes we are healed. That, that Christ was, was crushed 
as my substitute, in my place, he stood. There on the cross, he was taking my place. The wrath of God that I deserved, the punishment that I deserved, my sins were paid for. He redeemed me. And he took away my sins and washed me clean and then gave me his righteousness. And, and God, here at Calvary, is glorified. The Son is glorified in his compassion and his justice and his holiness and his perfection and his, and his glory and his wisdom and, and the, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. It is glorified here. As thou hast given him power. So as, in verse number two, we can say since, or according as. So he's saying the hours come, glorify thy son, that the son may glorify thee since thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So there's the glory. That's how he glorifies. Since, Father, glorify your son since you have given your son power over all flesh. Glorify your son since you have given him uh, power to, to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So there is glory in the covenant of redemption, in the power of Christ, in the work of Jesus Christ as our mediator. That Christ came, the Son of Man, came as our representative, as our mediator, and that he has power to give eternal life. J.I. Packer said, why did God choose to redeem? He need not have done so. He was not bound to take action to save us. His love for sinners, his resolve to give his son for them was a free choice that he did not have to make. Why did he choose to love and redeem the unlovely? The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory. So for the glory of God and the praise of the glory of His grace, He gave eternal life to all those that the Father had given Him. And what is eternal life? Verse 3, that they might know Thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. This eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. The only way to know the true God it's through Jesus Christ. You can't come to God apart from Christ. You can't come to God by knowing there is a God. You can't come to God by knowing that God is powerful. You can't know, come to God knowing that the Bible is about God or to know that you worship God in the church. You can only come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Only through the only begotten one sent from the Father is there eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. You cannot come to God through, except through Jesus Christ you, because you fall short of His glory. The only way to the glory of God is through Jesus Christ, the express image of His person. And so in this prayer, he prays that the triune God would be glorified, be praised, be honored, be worshipped, that we would see his intrinsic glory in the work of the Son at Calvary. And praise God, he was uh, glorified there. All right, well, let's, uh, let's 
uh, close uh, this hour with a word of prayer. And I'll ask Brother Bernie if you would dismiss him with prayer, please.